Ready? Born ready. with us. Let's get right into today's show. First up, so much is going on. Last week, the MARTA board voted last week on a new transit line. You might have seen this in the news. So in a few years, we will see something called bus rapid transit going down Campbellton Road. But not everyone is happy. Uh, Vincent Fort, a friend of Just Eldridge Media, says that black folks are getting the short end of the stick here on this new transit line. Why? Because the MARTA board did not vote for something called light rail transit. I'm sure we've talked about this on the pod before, but unfortunately in the South, we have a serious stigma against public transit. And it gets even worse if you're talking about buses. So what is bus rapid transit? It's very similar to rail. It's a rail-like service. When it's done right, it's practically exclusively all on a dedicated lane on the street. So they would take out a lane that you are driving on right now and turn that into a bus-only lane. Why? Because that means the bus can bypass everyone in their cars stuck in traffic. And the buses even have signal prioritization. And that just means that they don't have to wait at a red light as long. The dedicated lane is what makes the bus as competitive as rail. So we have the Atlanta Streetcar downtown, and you all know that. It was a very expensive project. But the Atlanta streetcar does not have a dedicated lane, and so it gets stuck in event traffic. So folks going to a concert or going to a Hawks game, it gets stuck in that same traffic, and it's not able to move people fast enough. Now, the big concern here with folks like Vincent Ford is that buses are not permanent in the same way that rail is. And so people are worried that investment is not going to come from the bus line in the same way that it would for a rail line. And there's especially concern that historically black communities are getting the bus, but what they actually need and want is rail to make up for the lack of investment that has happened over the years, over the decades. Uh, There are a couple of more big MARTA projects that they'll be voting on, the MARTA board, uh, to determine what that transit line is going to be. And by the way, who makes up the MARTA board? Uh, Those folks are appointed by the mayor of Atlanta, the Atlanta City Council, and also the governments within the MARTA service area. So Clayton County, DeKalb County, and Fulton County. The governor of Georgia also has an appointment. Again, this is one of those things that I try to help you understand how elected officials impact you beyond just what you might see and hear legislatively. And speaking of the legislative impact, so last week, Atlanta Civic Circle did a panel discussion with Housing Justice League 
Abundant Housing Atlanta Tech Equity Collaborative and the Atlanta Regional Commission. The topic was about Wall Street purchasing up houses across the metro region and the fact that they're doing it and it's impacting everyday people's ability to purchase a home. And so the Atlanta Regional Commission had some interesting data that's worth mentioning. Let me highlight some of these. So number one, home ownership in Metro Atlanta has gone down with the exception of Fulton County. So home ownership has gone down in the city of Atlanta itself. So not in the rest of Fulton, but it has gone down in the city of Atlanta and it's gone down in every other county in the region. The biggest de decrease in home ownership was in Henry County. Another interesting stat, the percentage of black and white homeowners in the region has declined since 20, 2010, but it has gone up for Hispanics and for other races. Another stat, the six largest Wall Street investors uh, who are investing in Metro Atlanta own 5,000 or more parcels of land each, at least 5,000. Uh, and then the other one, the last one here is that the data shows that we as a region are not building enough housing to meet the demand. So some of this can be solved through legislation, especially things like land use, but a lot of work also has to be done to address economic access. And so to make sure that people are actually being paid a living wage that actually affords them the opportunity to work hard and achieve that American dream. And now this is a perfect segue into Forest Cove, an example of an American dream being absolutely broken. So a quick update on Forest Cove, which I personally would just love to make a mini docu-series about this saga because it's one of those things that if you see it and hear it and read it, it really would make your blood boil. So we've talked about Forest Cove on the pod a few times now. The residents have complained that their toilets don't flush, ventilation is missing, they've got rat and rodent infestations. It's just terrible living conditions. So you might remember that a judge ordered that the Forest Cove apartments be condemned. So the city of Atlanta has been working to move the 200 and something families who currently live in Forest Cove to other temporary housing. And the current owners of Forest Cove, Millennia, they are supposed to either rebuild it or sell it and have someone else handle it. Millennia is also going to have to pay the city of Atlanta back for the cost of moving these families. So first, the city of Atlanta said, we have a goal to have everyone rehoused by this week. So by the week of July 15th, July 18th. Uh, and then the city said, well, that might be a little too soon. And they said, okay, let's have a goal to do it by August 1st when school starts. Here we are getting really close to that date. And so far they've only moved about 20, uh, it's around 22 of the families. Not good. Uh, one of the big challenges is that there are not a lot of three to four bedroom houses or units that accept section eight. And so some of the families have been moved, but again, they're, they're having a hard time finding something beyond a one or two bedroom. So if you imagine 
a mother with three or four kids, it's really difficult to have everyone in a one or two bedroom apartment or house. And some of the families that have been relocated, granted, they are being moved to better conditions, but even the new locations still have serious maintenance issues. And so, again, this is just really sad, and I hope that the city is able to get these families settled by the time the school year starts. And then, unfortunately, I think I mentioned this before, the elementary kids are going to be going to a new school because Atlanta Public Schools shut down Thomasville Heights Elementary. That's the school that's literally directly across the street from the Forest Cove Apartments. So this is a lot of change, a lot of disruption for these families. And I just pray that we get this right as a city, because unfortunately, these families have been let down by institutions that should never have let this get this bad. All right, on to some Georgia uh, politics with national implications. So Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis, she is moving forward with her probe on how Trump tried to steal the election in Georgia. And she sent letters to the GOP Chairman David Schaefer, to State Senator Burt Jones. By the way, he is the Republican nominee for Lieutenant Governor. And then also to State Senator Brandon Beach, letting them know that they could be charged. Uh, Congressman Jody Heiss, he ran for Secretary uh, of State as a Trump-backed candidate, but lost to the current Republican Secretary of State in the primary, Brad Raffensperger. Jody Heiss, he was also subpoenaed. And he's actually trying to have his case heard in a federal court instead of Fulton County. And then the other Republican uh, who's also been uh, communicated to by the district attorney, Speaker of the House, David Ralston, he testified before a Fulton County grand jury about calls that he received from President Trump and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Now, we won't know what Ralston said until the grand jury concludes their uh their investigation, and then it kind of goes on to the next phase. Now, there's another hearing of the January 6th committee slated for this Thursday, and they're doing it during prime time. It's going to be, I believe, 8 o'clock p.m. Now, last week's hearing featured White House lawyer Pat Cipollone, and you hear in that hearing they talk a lot about December 14th. That was the date that the Electoral College met. Now, each state has their slate of electors, but Trump and his supporters attempted to convene what they called an alternate slate of electors that would have ignored the will of the voters in their state, including right here in Georgia. So take a listen to a snippet of last week's hearing. As you've seen in prior hearings, President Trump's Justice Department, his White House staff, and his campaign officials were repeatedly telling him that there was no evidence of fraud sufficient to change the outcome of the election. And last week, we conducted an eight-hour interview with President Trump's White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. You'll see a number of excerpts of that interview today and even more in our next hearing. Mr. Cipollone told us that he agreed with the testimony that there was no evidence of fraud sufficient to overturn the election. I want to start by asking if you agree, Mr. Cipollone, with the conclusions of Matt Morgan and Bill Barr, of all of the individuals who evaluate those claims, that there is no evidence of election fraud sufficient to undermine the outcome in a particular state. Yes, I agree with that. 
And Mr. Cipollone also specifically testified that he believed that Donald Trump should have conceded the election. Did you believe, and Mr. Cipollone, that the president should concede once you made a determination based on the investigations that you credited DOJ did and did, did you, in your mind, form the belief that the president should concede the election loss uh, at a certain point after the election? Well, again, uh, I was the White House counsel. Some of those decisions are political, so to the extent that, but, but if your question is that I believe he should concede the election at a point in time, yes, I did. I, I believe um, Leader McConnell went on to the floor of the Senate, I believe in mid-December, and basically said, you know, the process is done. You know, that, that would be in line with my thinking on these things. As Attorney General Bill Barr testified, December 14th should have been the end of the matter. December 14th was the day that the state certified their votes and sent them to Congress. And in my view, that was the end of the matter. Uh, I didn't see, uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, this would lead inexorably to a new administration. Mr. Cipollone also testified that the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said he shared this view. As early as that November 23rd meeting, we understand that there was discussion about the president possibly conceding the election. And, and specifically, uh, we understand that, that Mark Meadows assured both you and Attorney General Barr that the president would eventually agree to a graceful exit. Do you remember Mr. Meadows making any such representation? Are you saying as part of that meeting or separately? Again, without, without getting into that meeting, I would say that that is, a, that is a statement and a sentiment that I heard from Mark Meadows. I see. And, and again, do you know if it was on November 23rd or some point? Again, I, I, it was probably, you know, around that time, yeah. and it was probably subsequent to that time. It wasn't a one-time statement. Mr. Meadows has refused to testify, and the committee is in litigation with him. But many other White House officials shared the view that once the litigation ended and the Electoral College met, the election was over. And here's President Trump's former press secretary. I wanted to clarify, uh, Ms. McEnany, so back to my previous question, it was your view then, or was it your view, that the efforts to overturn the election should have stopped once the litigation was complete? In my view, um, upon the conclusion of litigation uh, was when I, I began to plan for life after the administration. And this is what Ivanka Trump told us. December 14th was the day on which the Electoral College met when these electors around the country met and cast the electoral votes consistent with the, the, the popular vote in each state. And, and it was obviously a, a public proceeding or, or a series of proceedings that President Biden had obtained the requisite number of electors. Was that an important day for you? Did that affect sort of your, your planning or your realization as to whether or not there was going to be an end of, of this administration? I think so. I think it was my, my sentiment probably prior as well. Judd Deere was a White House deputy press secretary. This was his testimony about what he told President Trump. 
I told him that my personal viewpoint was that the Electoral College had met, uh, which is the uh, <clears throat> system that our uh, country is, is set under to elect a president and vice president. And I believed at that point that the um, means for him to pursue uh, litigation um, uh, was probably closed. And you recall what his response, if any, was? He disagreed. We've also seen this testimony from Attorney General Barr reflecting a view of the White House staff in late November 2020. And then at that point, I left. And as I walked out of the Oval Office, Jared was there with Dan Scavino, who ran his, who ran the president's um, social media, and who I thought was a reasonable guy and believe is a reasonable guy. And I said, uh, "How long is how long is he going to carry on with this uh, stolen election stuff? Where is this going to go?" And by that time, uh, Meadows had caught up with me and uh, leaving the office and caught up to me and, and said uh, that uh, uh, he said, look, I, I, I think uh, that he's becoming more realistic and knows that there's a limit to how far he can take this. And then Jared said, you know, yeah, we're working on this. We're working on it. Now, I've said this before. What continues to uh be so remarkable about these hearings that the witnesses are all people who work in the Trump White House. These are folks with direct access to the president, to his chief of staff, to his kids. Again, these are all Republicans. And I think I've also said this before, that if the Department of Justice does not indict Trump or others in the White House who were part of this conspiracy, uh, it makes a January 6th part two, in my opinion, all the more likely to occur. And I also wonder what the folks who stormed the Capitol and are getting locked up and going to jail, uh, I wonder what they feel about these hearings and how they would feel if they're the ones going to jail, but Trump gets off scot-free. We'll see. All right, another interesting thing that happened uh, last week, the U.S. House passed what's called the National Defense Authorization Act. That's basically just the defense budget. It passed 329 to 101. Who voted against the bill? Well, four Georgia Republicans voted against the bill. Jody Heiss, who I mentioned before, Andrew Clyde, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Barry Loudermilk. Another person who voted no, which I found interesting, is Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who's also the head of the Democratic Party of Georgia. She is the only Georgia Democrat to vote no. And she said, and I quote in her reason on voting no, excessive defense spending prevents us from investing in the people we serve. It detracts resources from affordable housing, making childcare more accessible, bringing healthcare to everyone, and building the infrastructure of tomorrow. Again, that's a quote from Nakima Williams, Congresswoman of the 5th District. So the defense budget is $849 B with a B billion dollars. That is a $37 billion increase from what President Biden had originally proposed. And by the way, there were a record, record number of amendments to the bill, 650 amendments. 
If you understand the legislative process, you know that is a lot. One of the amendments that failed was a proposal to cut the budget by $100 billion. So here are some interesting things in the bill that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, another billion dollars would be going to military aid for Ukraine. Um, this bill would give a 4.6% pay increase to soldiers and civilian staff, American soldiers and civilians. It also gives a 2.4% inflation bonus to military folks who are making below a certain amount. Uh, and then another key thing here, the House Freedom Caucus, which folks like Jody Heiss are a part of, they say that the bill basically allows the military to fire soldiers who refuse to get vaccinated. Now, according to the military, 13% of the force is unvaccinated. But according to a whistleblower, that number is closer to 25%. So if that is indeed the case, I can't imagine that the military can afford to lose 25% of the soldiers. Uh, so why is the military budget so much more than uh, in previous years? Well, if you are a hawk, you would argue that we are dealing with a lot more than normal. We've got Ukraine versus Russia happening. We've got China versus Taiwan. We've got cyber warfare. We've got domestic terrorism. There's just a whole lot going on in the world. Okay, next up. SCOTUS reform, Supreme Court of the United States, if you're not, if you don't remember what SCOTUS is. So a new Fox poll says, shows that 71% of folks polled support a mandatory retirement age for Supreme Court justices. 66% support an 18-year term limit. And this one is surprising for me. 46% support adding more justices to the court. Now, if you look at the crosstabs for this, the numbers are even higher when you pull millennials and Gen Z. Now, let me just say, don't hold your breath for any of this to happen. Uh, the Democratic establishment, starting with Joe Biden, have made quite clear that they are not interested in changing the Supreme Court. So let's just save this show for the archives and see what happens in 2025. And then speaking of the court, one of the things that came out of the Roe v. Wade decision is a hint that the court could rule on other things that have been settled, including gay marriage. Now, I know I have seen at least one gay Republican that I personally know who swears that there's no way the court would overturn Oberfell. But I don't know if he is pandering or signaling a change is afoot, but Senator Ted Cruz had something to say about gay rights. And I'm sure my friend who's a gay Republican is not happy. Take a listen. If you were... At, in this role as an advocate and Obergefell was in front of the Supreme Court again in some way, what would be the the vulnerability of this case? What would be the argument uh, against this case or the argument for overturning it? So look, Obergefell, like Roe versus Wade, ignored two centuries of our nation's history. Marriage was always an issue that was left to the states. Uh, we saw states before Obergefell that were moving. Some states were moving to allow gay marriage. Other states were 
moving to allow uh, civil partnerships. There were different standards that the states were adopting. And had the court not ruled in Obergefell, the democratic process would have continued to operate. That if you believed gay marriage was a good idea, the way the Constitution set up for you to advance that position is convince your fellow citizens. And if you succeeded in convincing your fellow citizens, then your state would change the laws to reflect those views. Uh, in Obergefell, the court said, no, we know better than you guys do. And now every state must uh, m- must sanction and, and permit gay marriage. Um, I think that decision was clearly wrong when it was decided. Um, it was the court overreaching. Whether the court will reverse it, I, I will say, so in Dobbs, what the Supreme Court said is Roe is different because it's the only one of the cases that involves the taking of a human life, and that's qualitatively different. I agree with that proposition. So if I'm a Democratic strategist, I am taking a page out of the Republican playbook, and I'm running a campaign of fear for the November election. Fear is a very powerful motivator. And speaking of fear, my favorite villain, Steve Bannon, Uh, was recently interviewed by a reporter at The Atlantic. And the author who wrote this piece uh, did an interview with Vox. And take a listen to some of the snippets from the author talking about her numerous interviews and exchanges with Steve Bannon for this story. Counterpoint here, and this is why I find someone like Bannon such a malicious actor and, quite frankly, a fascist. And I use that word very deliberately, right? I mean, the essence of fascism is mobilizing these sorts of resentments in ways that will only reinforce the conditions that produce the resentment in the first place, right? So like, yeah, there may be legitimate grievances out there, but he's mobilizing that energy in a way that will do nothing to actually redress those grievances. It will only make things worse. And that's what is so disgusting about this project from my perspective. And not just from yours, how I say it is this. I keep saying to him, what do you expect will happen once you've torn it all down? For me, it's just, it's pure negation, right? Yes. It's a giant no. Pure negation. That's very well said. And so they may be content free, but there is a strategy and a very formidable one at that, right? You've mentioned misinformation and disinformation a few times in this conversation. And I wrote a piece about this idea of flooding the zone with shit. And I credit Bannon in large part with introducing that. And what I have said before, and I'll say again, is that I think he understands the political press better than the political press understands itself. I think he very successfully hacked the media. And the idea here was always pretty simple, right? The press is set up to mediate a functioning liberal democracy. We're supposed to sift fact from fiction and we give the public the information they need to make enlightened political choices. You know, at least that's the fantasy. But Bannon just said, nah, nah. I'm going to short circuit that process by flooding the ecosystem with misinformation and overwhelm the media's ability to mediate. So he just lies repeatedly and shamelessly and watches the press fumble over itself, attempting to debunk all those lies and actually just reinforce them with their coverage. He's been a kind of mastermind of that. This is Hannah Arendt territory, right? What you do eventually is just exhaust people. You numb them. Yeah. Do you think I'm giving him too much credit there? No, 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 no. I think that he takes pride in being a propagandist. I think Andrew Breitbart called him the Lenny Riefenstahl of the Tea Party movement. Yeah. And I asked him how he felt about that. And he said, well, setting aside Lenny Riefenstahl's politics, 
I take that as a compliment, essentially, because... By the way, Lenny Raffenstahl, who is mentioned, uh, the author mentions, she was a German movie industry person who produced propaganda films for Adolf Hitler. And before she died, she had this to say about Hitler, and I quote, I was one of millions who thought Hitler had all the answers. We saw only the good things. We didn't know bad things were to come. I think that sounds eerily familiar. Uh, Joe Manchin has once again faked the Democrats. Um, he has killed President Biden and Democrats' plans to fund efforts to address climate change. And he has also killed a plan to raise taxes on wealthy Americans and American companies. A part of his rationale is that passing such measures would increase inflation. One of his fellow senators was not pleased and went absolutely off on him. Take a listen to this from Bernie Sanders. And the, and the agenda there. Senator Joe Manchin, of course, abruptly pulled the plug this week on the Democrats. No, Martha, he didn't abruptly. Pass. Martha, oh, oh, okay, Martha, let, let, let okay. He abruptly on Friday. He didn't did abruptly that. do anything. He was he negotiating for a while. the president's agenda. No. Uh, look, if you check the record six months ago, I made it clear that you have people like Manchin, Cinema to a lesser degree, who are intentionally sabotaging the president's agenda, what the American people want, what a majority of us in the Democratic caucus want. Nothing new about this. And the problem was that we continue to talk to Manchin like he was serious. He was not. This is a guy who is a major recipient of fossil fuel money, a guy who has received campaign contributions from 25 Republican billionaires. Okay, this guy is serious? Senator, I no. want, I, I, okay, you say he wasn't serious, but Manchin says his main goal is to do what's good for West Virginia, and he's worried about inflation. Listen to what he told the really, West Virginia really? radio station. Listen to this, please. Is that right? And inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. They can't buy gasoline. They have a hard time buying groceries. Everything they buy and consume for their daily lives is a hardship to them. Your reaction to that, Senator? Well, look, the same nonsense that Manchin has been talking about for a year. West Virginia is a beautiful state. I've had the pleasure of being there. Great people. It is one of the poorest states in this country. You ask the people of West Virginia whether they want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and eyeglasses. You ask the people of West Virginia whether we should demand that the wealthiest people in large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes. Ask the people of West Virginia whether or not all people should have health care as a human right like in every other country on earth. That's what they will say. In my humble opinion, you know, Manchin represents the very wealthiest people in this country, not working families in West Virginia or America. And, and, and Senator Sanders, I, I want to end with, if these provisions don't get passed, doesn't look like they will, what does that mean for Democrats' climate goals and the climate itself? Martha, it ain't Democrats. It isn't the president. It is the future of the planet. So I also want you to hear a montage of Representative AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Last year, last December, I believe it was, uh, after Joe Manchin killed the original Build Back Better bill, which included that climate component. Take a listen to what AOC had to say. 
Well, I think uh, what Senator Manchin did yesterday represents such an egregious breach of the trust of the president. And it's also, you know, this is exactly why uh, it's an outcome that we had warned about um, well over a month ago. Of course, we have every right to be furious with Joe Manchin, but it's really up to leadership in the Democratic Party uh, who, you know, made the decision to get us to this juncture and how we're going to move forward. And I think right now that uh, leader, Democratic leadership has a very large number of tools at their disposal, the president particularly, and it's really about time that, you know, we take the kid gloves off and we start using them to govern for working families in this country. Now, when that decision to separate and to advance uh, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill happened, some of us took umbrage with that. And uh, the president did say that uh, that the bipartisan, I mean, rather, that the Build Back Better Act was promised um, and that, you know, he's got it. And we said, you know, with respect uh, to the president, he can't, no one uh, can really be, promise a, a mansion vote. Our leadership needs to step up. And I think that we can do that. Uh, I, I do not believe that the situation is beyond repair, but it's going to take a different kind of thinking to get out of it than it did to get into it. Folks sometimes jokingly call Senate private school for a reason. Uh, we are treating the Senate, you know, just the fact that you can go on Fox News and say, I don't feel like voting for this, or I don't think I'm going to do it. Uh, but we really need mm -hmm. to create a governing environment in the United States Senate, make it tough, don't go on vacation, come back, call the vote, have to stand here, in here. front of your constituents and say, no, I'm going to take dollars, I'm going to take the food out of your kids' mouths, make him take that vote. They had they made us take the vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. God forbid that that they might actually have to show up and stand or or sit and actually have to talk and actually live out the threat of their filibuster. I mean, it is it is unconscionable the way that the Senate operates. It's fundamentally undemocratic. The bill has already been retrofitted to Joe Manchin's liking. Let's make that extremely clear. And so this is a Joe Manchin Build Back Better Act. And so this idea that we're going to go back to the table and give him the pen again for a bill that he has already have, has his ink all over makes very little sense. You know, being strung along has been uh, the, the path this entire time, this entire year. So here we are in July and everything she said is continuing to be the case. Uh, now that we are in year two of Biden's presidency. And it's remarkable that they just have not learned how to deal with Joe Manchin. Okay, on to party poopers and party starter. What's rule number one? Party? No, not party. No, it's not party. Turn out the lights. The party's over. <laughs> the party is over. Close the gates. What? Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. This week's party pooper, Taco Gate, Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady, a.k.a. Joe Biden's wife. Take a listen to this. Alex, the first lady was addressing a conference of the largest Latino civil rights organization in the nation. She also mispronounced the word bodega, which means small grocery store. But it was her comments about Latinos in San Antonio that have some wondering who wrote her speech and others pouncing. This organization 
with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. <laughs> I don't know who the heck wrote her speech, but why on earth would you compare Latinos or anyone to food? And then the mispronunciation of bodega was also weird. I don't know if it was one of those times where maybe she just didn't get a chance to read the speech beforehand and she was just reading from that teleprompter. And sometimes when you read from the teleprompter, a word that you would ordinarily know just comes out odd. I have no idea if that's what the case was. But I do know if a Republican had said what she said about Latinos, they would have been absolutely skewered. Um, a word of advice to folks, if you are speaking to a particular group of people, maybe run the speech by folks from that actual group. I just cannot imagine that a Hispanic person in the White House read that speech and said, yep, Jill, definitely go say that. Um, so Jill, Dr. Jill Biden is my party pooper of the week for that one. Let's get it started in here. What's rule number one? Party. And then my party starter is the workers at the Starbucks store at Howell Mill. They staged a strike over the weekend because uh, this store voted to unionize in June, but Starbucks management is allegedly refusing to negotiate with the workers and has even cut the hours of the employees who voted to unionize. So one of the shift supervisors at the Hell Mill store said this, and I quote, we've seen people who were not pro-union getting more hours than they asked for, and people who are pro-union getting less than 10 hours per week. And then uh, one of the co-chairs of the Atlanta Democratic Socialists of America, again, DSA, the Atlanta chapter, has been helping Starbucks workers and other workers in the, in the state of Georgia, in the metro area, go through uh, their union efforts. And so the co-chair of the Atlanta Democratic Socialists of America said this, and I quote, it's not like you get a union and management just suddenly works to negotiate with you. You really need to keep the pressure on. Honestly, the vote is just the beginning. So kudos to the workers at the Howell Mill store for staging a strike um, and saying, hey, we voted to unionize and we need you, Starbucks, to recognize that um, and work with us in good faith. So we'll see what will happen. I'm not sure how Starbucks retaliated if they did. Uh, but again, I believe all of this comes down to a desire to achieve the American dream, but feeling that is out of reach because of everything from inflation uh, to low wages just generally, um, and not being able to do what you know, generations before us did, purchase a home that is affordable, go to school that is affordable, uh, better your life and your family's life. 
And so when that is out of reach for folks, again, I believe it's not good for American democracy. It's not good for our communities. Um, that is today's show. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. As always, thank you for listening. Feel free to leave us a voice note if you've got something you want to say. Uh, happy to hear it. We've gotten a couple about uh, our coverage going forward about how we're going to do um, our Who Runs Georgia series and what questions folks might have. So stay tuned for that. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Sada Long, and this is Where the Party At. <laughs>